Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell, and this is the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. We spent some time with Elliot in the last couple of weeks, and let's move forward now from Elliot. There's actually a, a big question that I'm continually interested in. After T.S. Eliot, who's the next most important poet of the second half of the 20th century in English? Now, if we turn beyond English, we have all these wonderful poets from uh, Eastern Europe and Russia, uh, Sheshwaf Miwosh, who we've talked about before, is certainly one of the great poets of the latter half of the 20th century, but he's writing in Polish. What about English poets? What about English language poets? Well, some might say Sylvia Plath. Some might say her husband, Ted Hughes. I would say that at least in the running is a poet named Philip Larkin. Philip Larkin did not have a troubled marriage and live through World War I like Eliot did. He didn't have the crazy ups and downs of relationships and death untimely that Sylvia Plath did. Philip Larkin was actually kind of a pretty quiet guy who had a pretty quiet life. He was born in England in 1922. He went to Oxford and he became a librarian and was a librarian for decades and decades. And he wrote poetry in his spare time and lived a quiet life. Apparently he was fun at parties, but he wasn't a major figure in world events, or maybe even in world poetry, but especially in England, he's considered one of the finest versifiers, one of the finest craftsmen of traditional verse in English in the second half of the 20th century. So I'm going to share a poem by him that's very characteristic of not just how he writes poetry, but also of his worldview and kind of an expression of this post-World War II worldview of kind of the British world in the 50s and 60s. So this poem was published in 1955 in Larkin's second collection. His second collection was called The Less Deceived, and this poem is called Church Going. Once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats, and stone, and little books, sprawlings of flowers, cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, a small neat organ, and a tense, musty, unignorable silence, brewed God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence, move forward, run my hand around the font. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new. Cleaned or restored? Someone would know, I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, Here endeth, much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Yet stop I did, in fact I often do, and always end much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for. Wondering, too, when churches fall completely out of use, what we shall turn them into, if we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate, and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep. Shall we avoid them as unlucky places? Or, after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone? pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one.
power of some sort or other will go on in games, in riddles, seemingly at random. But superstition like belief must die, and what remains when disbelief has gone? Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky, a shape less recognizable each week, a purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was, one of the crew that tap and jot and know what rude lofts were, some ruined bibber, randy for antique or Christmas attic, counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh. Or will he be my representative, bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub, because it held unspilt so long and equably what since is found only in separation, marriage and birth and death and thoughts of these for whom was built this special shell. For, though I've no idea what this accoutred, frousty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house, on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destinies, and that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. So I'm conflicted by this poem. The end always gets me. It moves me. But the first half of the poem, well, I almost want to say he needs to revise it one more time. It's kind of loose and floppy and honestly just a little bit disrespectful. But Larkin was loved for his disrespect, for his snarkiness and his kind of morose jollity. He has a lot of poems that kind of say, ah, what does it all mean anyway? But kind of with a swagger and a wink. It's sort of a jolly nihilism, some might say. Church-going, though, is where this jolly nihilist, where this, ah, we're all going to die in the end and nothing's really important anyway, it's where that guy walks into a church and has to deal with it. And I think it's why it's one of the most interesting poems, certainly of Larkin's career, but also one of the most interesting poems of the century as it turns toward the contemporary age. We get the voice of someone who admits, look, I'm bored and uninformed. I don't know anything about this church. I'm a little bit disrespectful and awkward even walking into it with no one in there. But as he stands there, as he thinks about it, he comes to what some might even say is a, a little a little highfalutin of a conclusion. Let, let's track how he gets there. So this first stanza... Once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting seats and stone and little books, sprawlings of flowers cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small neat organ, and a tense, musty, unignorable silence. Rude God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward, in awkward reverence. That's the first stanza. 
If you heard someone say it, you might think, well, they know how to speak clearly and a little cleverly. But also, he uses some very slang terms. He uses the word stuff, brass and stuff. Stuff is one of the most boring, vague words one can use. And I would never let a student of mine get away with using the word stuff if they could be more specific in a poem. But but Larkin knows what he's doing here linguistically. He wants us to, to see this speaker, which most people associate with just Larkin himself, but as we've talked about in this podcast before, we need to be careful when we speak in something as highly wrought as a lyric poem. We must know that the crafter of the poem is putting in and taking out exactly what they want in order to shape the speaker into who they want them to be. It's never just bare self-expression that's unthoughtful. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And we could say this, there's no such thing as an unexamined poem. The poem is always examined by the writer, or it's not a poem. The speaker is always examined. The speaker of a poem lives the examined life down to the rhythm of his words and the connotation of his words. So when Larkin uses the word stuff, he knows darn well that we're going to think, well, that's kind of a really vague and disrespectful and kind of bored word to use about the important, beautiful, holy things in a church. He says, stuff up at the holy end. Also, he has the audacity to use the Lord's name in vain describing a church. He says, an intense, musty, unignorable silence brewed God knows how long. What's hilarious is, of course, if you're in a church, you're in a context where talking of the knowledge of God is one of the most important things you can do. So Largan's very clever. God knows how long is sort of a, a, uh, a breezy post-Christian way of saying nobody knows. But also, given that he's saying it in the context of a church, Larkin must know that in Christian theology, we could in fact say that, of course, God knows exactly how long the air has been in there and how long the smells have been there. For God knows all things. God is Lord of time and space. And Larkin wants us to think about those dual meanings, I think. Once again, it's very clever. It's a use of casual, slightly disrespectful language in order to create in the reader a tension and a wondering and even an objection. Like, wait, wait a minute, buddy, we might say, especially those of us who are churchgoers. He knows that. He wants to provoke that in us. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence. It's great. He's wearing cycle clips. He's on a bike ride. He's not, you know, walking into church after a while thinking like, oh, maybe I should go back to church. He's not the Eliot who in 1927 rejoins the Anglican church. He's the guy who's like, oh, what's going on here? Eh, I don't know. I don't really get it. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new, cleaned or restored. Someone would know. I don't. Mounting the lectern. So he just walked up to where the preacher or priest would stand. I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, here endeth. Now, of course, here endeth would be the beginning of the phrase, here endeth the lesson, which would be after the reading of the epistle in an Anglican communion service. He's pretending kind of rudely to be the priest and then surprising himself with how loud he, he's talking and he feels awkward. It's a fantastic portrait of this post-Christian speaker who doesn't know what he's doing there. And it's great. He walks in and he says, oh, there's stuff up there. These beautiful, probably 
very meaningful symbols on the altar, maybe statues, icons uh, depicting the life of Christ and the saints. What does he call that? Stuff. What is he interested in? I wonder how new this roof is. It's the economic interest. It's the how long ago have they built this? And I wonder how long this will stand. And, and later he says, I don't even know what this is worth. He's thinking of selling it. And in fact, the middle of the poem, which I want to jump to, he has this question of when will church going totally go away from culture? He says, when churches fall completely out of use, what shall we turn them into? If we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep. A let in British parlance means to rent. Are we going to keep some cathedrals open? You know, because eventually nobody's going to go to church. So will we like preserve these as like museums and then like let farm animals use the rest? And then he has an even worse thought, maybe. Shall we avoid them as unlucky places? No, churches, in fact, were such a bad idea. We'll all stay away. But then the poetic imagination takes over after this. Or after dark will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone, pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one. The language here is really interesting. Dubious women. Dubious can mean doubtful, but it could also mean women whose beliefs are strange. Maybe we doubt whether they're true. But perhaps dubious here refers to superstition, folk religion. Dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone, pick simples for a cancer. As far as I know, simples is an old phrase for like herbs or maybe even magic objects that could heal someone in an older sort of folk religion, folk magic sense. Will churches become a place for the hidden, the esoteric, and the occult that's outside of popular culture. And then he has this great line, which sounds a lot like a line from Shakespeare, or on some advised night see walking a dead one. Whoa, now we're with ghosts. And also, this guy who shows us, he knows popular common slang. He can say the church and stuff. He says, advised night see walking a dead one. Walking if we were going to speak commonly in English, it should be advised night see a dead one walking. But see walking a dead one, that's inverted language that reminds us of at least Elizabethan English, if not even medieval or early modern English of someone like Chaucer. He has changed his language to describe older, maybe even medieval practices in older medieval word ordering. Larkin is very, very sneaky. And have you noticed that he's actually rhyming? Every other line rhymes off and on. So in the first stanza, we have, once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside letting the door thud shut, another church, matting seats, and stone, on and stone, have a slant rhyme. And then, and little brook, sprawlings of flowers, cut, shut, on, stone, shut, cut. He's doing an ABAB rhyme scheme off and on. And he made us think he was just kind of bored, uninformed guy. Let's look at the end of the poem. Because after he, he thinks about a religion being totally eclipsed in culture, 
and thinking about maybe maybe there will still be some some very small tiny contingent of you know women who still practice occult magic who teach their children at night because of course it wouldn't be proper to do it in the daytime to still go to a church so strange that people would still go to a church will that happen and then he has this turn he says but superstition like belief must die there's this almost chronological idea in this poem that we start out with belief and then it dies. People stop going to church. But what lasts superstition, but no superstition like belief must die. And what remains when disbelief has gone? If disbelief leaves, it's almost like people don't even think to start believing to begin with. Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky, a shape less recognizable each week, a purpose more obscure. We'll even forget why there were churches to begin with. This, I think, is an apocalyptic poem. It's a very gently apocalyptic poem, but especially as a person of faith, it's very sad to imagine. It's not just that people will stop going to church as much, or even people will stop going to church at all. It's, we'll even forget what they were for. We won't remember. It's like Stonehenge. We'll walk up to it and say, huh, this is weird. Seems to be constructed in a way that has some meaning, but I don't know what it is. And that's the speaker in church going. He says, who will be the last, the very last to seek this place? Will he be my representative, bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub? Because it held unspilt so long and equably what since has found only in separation, marriage and birth and death and thoughts of these for whom was built this special shell. Oh, Larkin, you, you rascal. You said, we're going to forget what it's for. And then you bring us in with your poetic language, which you can turn on in a heartbeat. He tells us what he thinks churches are for. Holding unspilt marriage, birth, death, and thoughts of these. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destinies. Larkin isn't having a religious conversion in this poem. He's not saying, okay, I'll go back to church. I believe in God. But he's giving us, I think, in the way that he as a non-believer can, a description of what he thinks is going on in church. It's a serious house on serious earth in whose air our compulsions meet. All our desires, what does he say, are recognized and robed as destinies. There's this lifting of human desire by this serious house on serious earth to destiny. Marriage, birth, death, thoughts of these. These are things we must face. We fear to face or we look forward to facing. Church somehow gathers them together and ennobles them. I'm very thankful to Larkin for admitting this or imagining that this might be so. I love this last, this last section of the last stanza because I think it shows that this idea that churches will fall out of use and we'll forget what they're for. He ends up concluding that that won't happen. And that much never can be obsolete since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground. Someone will forever, there will always be someone 
who finds surprised in himself. This reminds me of that line we talked about in our last podcast, the cogitations still amaze the troubled midnight and the moon, noon's repose is a similar uh, strange but very fitting use of verb. Someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself. A hunger will spring up. A hunger for what? To be more serious and thus gravitating with that desire to this serious ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in. And I think that seriousness and wisdom maybe show us a bit of stoicism in Larkin. Larkin knew how to wink at human despair and say, oh yeah, it's all sad, isn't it? But I think he's admitting here, look, there is a seriousness, maybe that he hasn't achieved, but he knows that is inherent in humanity. And that seriousness will lead us to grow wise. And I think he's led us through his kind of casual pentameter through his ABAB slant rhyme schemes. He's led us to, I think if he's been successful, and people debate about the success of this poem, but I think if he's been successful in this poem, he's led us to an understanding of why one would want to be a churchgoer, why one would want to surprise a hunger in themselves to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie around. It's great. This whole time he's been thinking of, what's this worth? And how new is the thing? And oh, if I speak loudly enough, oh, it's, it's loud. And oh, there's all this stuff. Ah, we'll probably stop going here. We'll forget what these are for. And then in this last line, the weight of the dead strikes him. A church, a traditional church, especially in England, or in most places in the world other than America, a church is also surrounded by a cemetery. And the dead begin to press in upon this poem. And not in a creepy way, not in advised night see walking a dead one, but they seem to emphasize the seriousness and wisdom that can be gained from being in a serious house on serious ground. Larkin is in contention, I think, for one of the great poets in English of the last half of the 20th century. But he's shown us in this poem that he can be a little loose and maybe almost a little boring and bored, but he knows how to snap into considerations of those ancient things. Marriage, birth, death, and thoughts of these. It's good as people of faith to read poems about faith by people who lack it or maybe are bored by it or just don't know a lot about it. And I think the form has led him to see that what we do at church could be like what we do in poetry, that you could be serious and methodical and through form seek to grow wise in church, just as through form, I hope, at our best, if we try, we may also grow wise in poetry. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Visit us online at stconstantine.org. Goodbye.